Every year I attend a pastor's conference to get refreshed and refueled for life and ministry. I get away to another city and have sweet fellowship with fellow pastors and friends and seminary professors and and we hear great preaching and we have incredible worship with a superb band and we get lots of free books and we eat a lot of good food and while I go away to these conferences, sometimes I feel like I'm Moses going up to Mount Sinai for 40 days to be with the Lord. It's, It's a wonderful time of refreshing and rejuvenating my own heart. And every year at the conference, I think to myself, I am going to be different when I return this time. I am going to be a better husband, a better father, a better pastor, a better neighbor. And every year, I really think that I'm going to return home. And within hours, I really think that my wife, Heather, will notice a visible change in me. Like the face of Moses shining with God's glory as he left the tent of meeting. I really think that when I walk through the doors, my family will think, wow, dad's a different man. Mom, see the holy aura radiating around dad? That conference really changed him. He's different. He's kind. He's a servant. He's gentle. He never raises his voice. He's self-controlled. He's not self-absorbed. He's not glued to his iPhone anymore. Of course, at the pastor's conference, I tell myself that when I return home, I will wake up at 4 a.m. to pray every day. And I will read the Bible for two hours every day. And I won't yell at the kids while they're getting ready for school. And we'll never miss family devotions anymore. And when I read a criticizing email, I will respond like Jesus. And I will fast for more than two hours before I cave in and eat a donut. And I will pray for our missionaries every day. And I will clean the bathrooms at home without complaining. And I will joyfully get up out of bed and get Heather a glass of water when she asks me to, even after I'm settled and cozy. And I will, and I will, and I will, I will be different this time. And I return from every conference full of the Holy Spirit and full of joy and full of lots of determination to be better and different and good. And usually before our family van, which is full of my family who came to the airport to get dad, usually before our van hits the 101 freeway after we leave the airport, I have lost all of it. And the same Benji Magnus that left has returned. In youth ministry, it's called the camp high. You go to camp, you get pumped up, and you make all kinds of resolutions about following Jesus, and then when you return home, things go back to normal. It's really nothing new. God's people have been making promises and then breaking promises ever since the fall of Adam and Eve. God's people have been making resolutions and then failing miserably throughout our history. We're really good at making promises and resolutions and being determined to be different and to be good. But we all, we all fail miserably. Welcome to life after Genesis chapter 3. But even though we make promises and break promises, even though we have large men's conferences where we say that we'll be promise keepers, the reality is that we won't. You won't keep all of your promises. 
I won't keep all of my promises. But there is someone who does. There is only one promise keeper, and his name is Jesus. And that's good news for promise breakers like you and me. And so our big idea today is this. The Christian life is not about what we do, should do, have done, or haven't done. It's about Jesus. The Christian life is not about what we do, should do, have done, or haven't done. It's about Jesus. And all of God's people should say, duh. But we forget this. And that's what we'll see in Nehemiah chapter 10 today. We'll see the nation of Israel start focusing on what they should do, what they will do, what they think they can do, instead of focusing on what Yahweh had already done for them. They actually think that they can keep God's law perfectly. And we'll see them actually say that they will keep the law perfectly and that they will actually call the curse of the law down on themselves if they don't keep God's law perfectly. So in Nehemiah 10, we have the nation coming down from the camp high of Nehemiah chapter 8 that we looked at several weeks ago, where Ezra told them, go eat good meat and drink good wine and celebrate the fact that God's not mad at you anymore. And they come down from that camp high, and in this chapter, they vow to keep their promises, and they vow that this time, things will be different. They will be better They will be good. They will be consistent with their quiet times. They will get up early and pray. They will not yell at their kids while getting them ready for church. And none of you parents did that this morning, did you? They will be promise keepers this time. And here's that list of promise keepers. It gets recorded in scripture. We'll actually start in Nehemiah Chapter 9, verse 38, which is actually Nehemiah 10.1 in the Hebrew Bible. So look at Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 38. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. On the seals are the names of Nehemiah the governor, the son of Hakaliah, Zedekiah, Sariah, Azariah, Jeremiah, Pashur, Amariah, Malchijah, Hattush, Shebaniah, Maluk, Harim, Meramoth, Obadiah, Daniel, Ginnathon, Baruch, Meshulam, Abijah, Mejamin, Maaziah, Bilgai, Shemaiah. These are the priests. And the Levites, Jeshua the son of Azaniah, Benui of the sons of Henadad, Cadmiel, and their brothers, Shebaniah, Hodiah, Kalida, Peliah, Hanan, Micah, Rehob, Hashabiah, Zakur, Sherebiah, Shebaniah, Hodiah, Bani, and Benu. The chiefs of the people, Perosh, Pehath, Moab, Elam, Zatu, Bani, Bunny, Asgad, Bebai, Adonijah, Bigvi, Aden, Atur, Hezekiah, Azur, Hodiah, Hashem, Bezai, Harif, Anatoth, Nabai, Magpiash, Meshulam, Hezer, Meshezabel, Zadok, Jadua, Pelatiah, Hanan, Aniah, Hoshea, Hananiah, Hashub, Halohesh, Pilha, Shobek, Rehum, Hashabna, Maaseah, Ahiah, Hanan, Anan, Maluk, Harim, and Ba'anan. So we have a list of people who think that they will keep their promises that they make to the Lord. They are renewing the covenant here in Nehemiah chapter 10. They're actually, the Hebrew is, they are cutting a firm covenant. So they put it in writing and they seal the document up. 
And then in verses 28 through 39, we get the stipulations of the covenant that they're going to keep. Now, they are basically saying, we are going to keep the entire Mosaic law. They are saying that they will keep all of the law as it's found in Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. And at this point, you should be saying, oh, Israel, what are you saying Oh, Israel, it's not about what you do or what you should do. It's all about what Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, has already done for you. And so here's a brief summary of what they are specifically committing themselves to. Besides their outrageous commitment to obey the law perfectly, specifically, it's this. They're saying, we will not marry foreigners or Gentiles. We will keep the Sabbath And we will give towards corporate worship, money, firewood, animals, oil, and tithes. So look at verse 28 through 39, and they will spell out specifically what they will keep. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who had separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our Lord and his rules and his statutes. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day, and we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God according to our Father's houses at times appointed year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. Also to bring to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle as it is written in the law. And the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks. And to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil, to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God. And to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor. And the priests, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the seekers. We will not neglect the house of our God. So the nation of Israel cuts a firm covenant with Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, and they vow to keep their promises. They will not intermarry with the nations. They will keep the Sabbath and they will be committed to corporate worship and all that it entails. Now, that doesn't seem so bad, does it? That seems doable, right? Surely they can keep from giving their children in marriage to foreigners. Surely they can keep from buying and selling on the Sabbath. Surely they can give faithfully to worship. 
But the reality is that they will fail at this. And we would fail at this too if we lived among them. Let me say that we do fail at this right now. Oh, you may not have given your kid's hand in marriage to a Muslim or a Buddhist, but how many of us have bought into the world's way of thinking? How many of us have, are conforming our life to the way the world thinks? How many of us are being shaped by the world? How many of us have experienced the compromise and corruption of this world? Oh, you may not actually work your job on Sunday, the Sabbath, And yes, some people have to work on the Sabbath. Doctors, nurses, policemen, pastors. But how many of us skip worship on the Sabbath for soccer? How many of us pass on church for the beach? How many of us stay up late on Saturday so that we struggle to stay awake in church on Sunday? Oh, you may tithe uh, 10% and you may not actually never give. Although some people never give, but how many of us give sacrificially? How many of us serve here? How many of us are just consumers and we come for good music, good coffee, a good sermon, and then we leave and we never give anything in return? So you see, we too all fail at these things just like the nation of Israel did throughout her history and just like she would do after they cut this covenant with the Lord and after they make all of these promises. But guess what? The Christian life is not about what we do or should do, have done or haven't done. It's about Jesus. That's the gospel, that Jesus kept the law for us because we fail repeatedly, that Jesus bore the curse of the law on the cross for us and in our place. Why? Because we could never keep the covenant faithfully. We could never keep our promises faithfully because all we know is that we fail miserably all the time. But what's staggering here in Nehemiah chapter 10 is that Israel calls a curse down on themselves if they don't keep their promises. Now, I don't know about you, but I have never said this as I left a pastor's conference. Lord, I vow to pray every morning for two hours, and if I don't, then let covenant curses fall down on me. Let me be accursed and cut off from you if I don't get out of bed and pray. Listen, I would not be standing here if I ever prayed that. And neither would you. But that's exactly what Israel does here in Nehemiah chapter 10. And if we're honest with ourselves, it's what we do too. Oh, we may not call a curse down on ourselves, but we make promises all the time thinking that we will be able to keep them. This time, I will keep them. This time, this year, I will read three chapters a day in my Bible. This time, I will pray for two hours per day. This time, I will share the gospel with my coworkers. And that's what Israel does here at Nehemiah 10. But they take it a step further, and they actually call a curse down on themselves if they fail to keep their promises. It's right there in the middle of verse 29. Look. And we enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our Lord and his rules and his statutes. They are so confident that they will be able to keep their word, keep their promises, that they actually invoke a curse on themselves if they fail. Wow. 
And what curse do they call down? They call down the covenant curses mentioned in Leviticus chapter 26 and Deuteronomy 28. You should read those sometime. They are saying this when they say this. Israel is saying, we will obey all of the law. And if we don't, then we are open game for those covenant curses that are mentioned in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. Pestilence, disease, fever, mildew, scabs, tumors, itching, blindness, boils, and ultimately death. Ultimately death if we don't keep this law. Death where our bodies will become the brunch buffet for the buzzards and the wild beasts. That's what Leviticus 26 says in Deuteronomy 28. In the books of Leviticus and Deuteronomy The Lord, Yahweh, promised to bless Israel if they were obedient and faithful to him and to curse them with all of these curses if they were disobedient and turned to worship other gods. And we know the history of Israel. They did this repeatedly. And here in Nehemiah 10, Israel is finding comfort in their duties, what they must do what they say they will do, how they will obey the law instead of finding comfort in what Yahweh had already done for them by redeeming them from Egypt and most recently by redeeming them from Babylon. You see, it's so easy to find comfort in what we do and in what we should do. It was easy for Israel like it's been easy for God's people throughout her history. And Puritan Thomas Wilcox, who's one of the lesser known Puritans, warned against this way of thinking in his book, Honey Out of the Rock. I recommend you read this short book. I stumbled upon it this week and read it late at night. It's very short, and I was like, I got to incorporate that into my sermon. If the last few sermons over the last few weeks have resonated with you about how you need to turn your eyes to Jesus and get them off of yourself and you've been freed by that, then I encourage you to read Wilcox's book, Honey Out of the Rock. It's, it's very easy. In this book, and you can get a free PDF online and we'll talk about it in our newsletter this week with a link there or you can just Google it. Some of you probably are already Googling it on your phone right now. But we'll talk about it in a week. In his book, Thomas Wilcox says this. To be looking at duties, the things that you must do for God, all of the things that you think you need to be doing for God, to be looking at that or graces or enlargements when you should be looking at Christ, that is pitiful. If you have looked at work, duties, and qualifications more than at the merits of Christ, it will cost you dear. But be as much afraid of taking comfort from duties as from sins. Comfort from any hand but Christ is deadly. What he means is that in the same way that we run to sin to find comfort and to be satisfied, we too may run to all of the Christian duties that we think we're supposed to do and that we're supposed to do And to find comfort from those things. We may take more joy in reading the word than enjoying Jesus Christ who is the word made flesh. We may value prayer more than we value the one that we're praying to. We may love missions more than the one who sends us out on mission. We may actually pride ourselves in what we do for God more than what God has done for us in Christ. 
We may enjoy duties and what we must do more than we enjoy what Jesus has already done. And it's so deceptive and it's so subtle and the devil knows it. If I can get your eyes off of Jesus, he thinks, then I win. And even yesterday morning as I was making my coffee, the devil came back around as he always does. He says, I can't believe you said that, thought that, did that, and you call yourself a Christian and you call yourself a pastor. And I was like, oh, yes. And I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute. It's not about me. The Christian life is not about me. It's not about what I haven't done. It's not about what I have done. It's about Jesus, and I'm gonna look to him and find comfort from him and the merits that come to me from Christ, the merits of Christ, because I'm in union with him. That's where my focus is to be, and that's why it's so subtle and so deceptive because the devil will come around and trick you into thinking that what you do for God or don't do for God is what matters in the Christian life, and you'll actually turn your eyes off of Jesus, which is exactly what the devil wants. See, some of us love our ministries more than we love Jesus. Some of us, if we lost our ministries, whatever various ministries we're involved in, we would wake up and realize that we lost one of our idols. Some of us actually worship our quiet times. Some of us have actually made our devotional times an idol. We love the fact that we're so faithful. We're so good at Bible studies. We're such good prayers. We're so missions-minded. We're such good parents. We do it right. We're such great pro-life people. We're such great pastors. We're so good and devoted to blank. That's deadly grace. It will cost you dear if you think like this. So hear Thomas Wilcox again. But be as much afraid of taking comfort from duties as from sins. Comfort from any hand but Christ is deadly. And hear our big idea again. The Christian life is not about what we do, should do, have done, or haven't done. It's about Jesus. And in Nehemiah 10, the Israelites are taking comfort from their duties, what they must do, how they will obey the law rather than on what Yahweh has already done for them. They are renewing the covenant with the Lord, but they fail to realize that they would fail at keeping their end of the bargain. They fail to remember their history of failure as a nation. They fail to remember that the nation of Israel had made promises before and failed, just like what happened in the book of Exodus. They say the same thing to Moses, Exodus 19, verses 7 through 8. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And then what happened after this? What happened after Israel says, all that Yahweh says we will do? What happened? Uh, It's just a little thing called the golden calf incident of Exodus 32. We will do everything that the Lord says, Moses. We will do it. Exodus 19. Then you fast forward to Exodus 32. Hey, where's Moses? I went up on Mount Sinai. But he's been gone 40 days. He must be dead. Hey, Aaron, get up and make us a golden cow to worship. Or what happened when Joshua was about to die? 
He says his famous words in Joshua 24, 15, choose this day whom you will serve, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Great verse. We sometimes put it in picture frames and hang it in our house. We should probably read the rest of the verse, though. Because how does Israel reply to choose this day whom you will serve? We will serve Yahweh, Joshua. We will serve the Lord. And what does Joshua say? You can't serve the Lord. You won't be able to. I know you. You'll fail miserably. Oh, no, 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 Joshua. We'll, 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 we'll do it this time. You're not going to be able to do it. Joshua and Moses knew that we are sinners who aren't able to keep our promises. They knew that everything we have is all due to God's grace and not our works. And that's why the Lord gave Israel such a permanent reminder in Deuteronomy 27 that it would be all of his grace and not Israel's obedience. In Deuteronomy 27, Yahweh taught Israel through a living drama. He taught them that you will fail miserably always. When Israel entered Canaan, the promised land, they were together on two mountains. Half of the people on Mount Gerizim and half of the people on Mount Ebal. Half of the tribes would gather on Mount Gerizim and cry out, Blessed are those who obey God's commands. And they would read all the blessings of the law. And the other half of the nation would gather on Mount Ebal and cry out, Cursed is the one who breaks these commandments and disobeys. And then they would read all of the curses found in the law. So you have half of the nation on Mount Gerizim, and they shout out, blessed are those who obey God's commands, and then they shout out the blessings of the law. And then the other half of the nation would gather on Mount Ebal, and they would shout out, cursed is the one who breaks these commandments and disobeys. And then they would shout out all the curses of the law. So you have this back and forth, blessed be, cursed be, blessed be, cursed be, blessed be, cursed be, less filling, tastes great. I always think of that commercial when I read this verse. Back and forth, blessed be, cursed be, blessed be, cursed be. And then they would set up an altar to worship the Lord. But where do they set up the altar? On which mountain do you put the altar? Do you put the altar to worship on the blessing mountain or the curse mountain? Where do you build the altar for worship? Mount blessing or mount curse? Rick Phillips gives the answer. What is so telling is that they were to set up the altar to worship the Lord. But on which mountain would it be erected? Would it be on Mount Gerizim, where joyful voices extolled the virtues of obedience? Or would it be on Mount Ebal, where mournful hearts reflected on the weighty curse of sin? Deuteronomy 27, verses 4 through 7 tells us the altar would be installed not on Mount Gerizim, not on the ground of their own obedience and achievement, but on Mount Ebal. They were to worship the Lord in the context of their own failure and not of their success. In the context of their transgression and not of their own obedience to God's holy law. According to Deuteronomy 27, they were to worship the Lord on Mount Ebal in the context of their sin and failures. Not in the context of their own obedience or their own goodness. They were to worship the Lord in the context of their failure, their sin, their broken promises, and not in the context of, I've been good at reading the Bible. I've read it every day since January 1st. I've been faithful in prayer. I'm such a good Christian. No, they were to worship Yahweh in the context of their failures and their sin and their broken promises because that's where they would find his grace. 
they would find his grace on Mount Ebal, Curse Mountain, because that's where they lived their daily lives in the context of failure and sin and broken promises. And that's exactly what Joshua does in Joshua 8. When they renew the covenant as they entered Canaan, as they entered the promised land, they build the altar to worship Yahweh on Mount Ebal, on Curse Mountain, because it would remind them of their sinfulness and their failure. But the nation of Israel in Nehemiah's day seemed to forget this. They seemed to forget that they couldn't keep the law perfectly. Someone needed to remind them of the curse that comes a-creeping from Mount Ebal, from Cursed Mountain. Someone needed to remind them that they were calling down a curse on themselves, but they would not be able to keep it from creeping towards them from Mount Ebal. Someone needed to tell them that they worshiped the Lord in the context of their failure and their sins and their broken promises, not in the context of their obedience to the law or their goodness. Someone needed to remind them what this covenant renewal was all pointing toward. The coming redeemer, Jesus Christ. Because as they saw their failure repeatedly and repeatedly, it would remind them there is someone coming who will be able to keep the promise, keep the covenant. Someone needed to remind them as we needed to be reminded of it today. The Christian life is not about what we do, should do, have done or haven't done. It's about Jesus. You see, we're just like Israel. We're good at making promises, but we're even better at breaking them. Of course, there's nothing wrong in wanting to be holy, in wanting to be obedient, in wanting to renew the covenant. We should desire to live godly lives, to be who we are called to be as the people of God. There's nothing wrong with Israel wanting to do these things, In fact, it's what they're called to do. They're called to renew the covenant. And it's what we're supposed to do here every Sabbath day. We come to corporate worship in order to renew the covenant. Every single time that we gather for worship, we gather to renew the covenant. We hear a call to worship. And then we confess our sins. And we are reminded of the gospel. And we are assured of the forgiveness of our sins that is ours because of Jesus. And then we are consecrated as God's people as we hear the preaching of the word. And as we celebrate communion with the Lord when we eat the Lord's Supper. And then we are sent out and commissioned to be God's representatives in the world. This is covenant renewal. But we do it in the context of our failures and God's promises to us. That's where Israel went wrong in Nehemiah 10. They thought they could actually be good enough to earn God's grace. They thought they could keep the law. They failed to remember their history and failed to understand that grace flows downhill. That grace only comes to sinners, only comes to failures, only shows up in the context of our failures and our disobedience. And haven't we all experienced that camp high, that conference high? Ever experienced the camp high at church? You hear a great sermon or a great Sunday school lesson and you commit, this time it's gonna be different. This time I'm going home and I'm gonna love my wife. This time I'm gonna be good with my kids. And then you return home only to experience failure. 
ever have a great quiet time, a devotional time with the Lord, and then you end it, and then you encounter other people, and it's gone. All that was gone. It's like, this is so wonderful. Jesus would never want to leave your presence. Oh, I got to go be with people. Just gone. Leaving a quiet time and having to deal with people. Ah, Jesus, you don't bother me. They do. It's like Moses on Mount Sinai. Moses has 40 days of the best quiet times, 40 days of the best devotional times ever, besides Jesus when he goes away to pray. And then Moses returns to the Israelite camp and he sees the Israelites worshiping the golden calf. And what does Moses do? He gets mad, he gets angry, and he smashes and breaks the Ten Commandments on the ground. Have you ever left your quiet time and done something like that? You totally lose it. Of course you have. Ever lose it with your kids before coming to church? Of course you have, you sinners. I've even told mine in frustration, get in that van right now because we're going to church to worship Jesus. (laughs) Ever fight with your spouse right before church? You know you have. And what happens when you arrive in the church parking lot? Suddenly, it's like this amazing amount of sanctification takes place between closing the car door and opening the church door. And I know all you married people have done this. Don't lie. You're in church. You fight with your spouse. You walk through these doors, and someone says, hey, how are you? You're like, great, I'm blessed, even though you just cursed your wife in the car. But that's how we come to worship every week. We come to worship the God who remains committed to us in spite of our failures, in spite of our sins, and in spite of our broken promises. We come to worship the faithful God in the context of our failures. So our commitment stinks. Our commitment stinks, but God's doesn't. Which is why we gather every Sabbath, every Lord's Day, to be reminded of his commitment to us. And yes, we should desire to live holy lives. And I'm not saying we shouldn't desire to be who God has called us to be. We should desire to live holy lives. We should strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord, as Hebrews 12, 14 says. But our covenants, our commitments, our renewals, our promises to be promise keepers are good, they are well-meaning, but do they last? Our covenants, our commitments Our renewals, our promises to be promise keepers are good. They are well-meaning, but do they last? Sadly, no. And we all know that from experience. But there is one promise keeper who always keeps covenant. His name is Jesus, and we worship him in the context of our sins, our failures, and our broken promises. So the good news of the gospel is that the Christian life is not about what we do, should do, have done, or haven't done. It's about Jesus. And that's why it's very dangerous to focus on what we do for God. Because the Christian life is about Jesus and what he has already done for us through his life, death, and resurrection. But so many Christians focus on what They do for God, and that becomes their idol and their undoing. How many churches and pastors focus more on what they do for God than on God? 
You just read the comments on Facebook and Twitter. You see it all over social media. If you want to throw up, I mean, if you wake up in the morning and you think to yourself, I'd like to throw up today. I haven't vomited in a while. I'd like to do that today. If you ever want to throw up in your mouth, just go online and read what so many pastors are saying on social media. So many pastors and churches brag about how many baptisms they do, how many services they have each week. And that one gets me really worked up because people online, if they don't live in your city, it doesn't matter what times your services meet. But they'll say, we meet at 9, 10, 30, 12, 1, 5, 8, 10, The people in your church who are following you on Twitter already know what time your church meets. Why do you got to tell the world? Because you're taking comfort from that instead of taking comfort from the merits of Christ that you are in union with him. It's pride. Churches, pastors rant on social media about how effective they are in reaching their city for Jesus, how great and exciting their new sermon series is, how incredible and exciting their church is, how manly their men's ministry is, how innovative and creative they are, how many churches they have planted, how many on and on and on and on and on it goes, and it's sickening. What they should be saying is, praise God, he works through broken people like us. We're failures, we're sinners, and he still uses us in spite of us. So forget about all the good things we do. We want to tell you about what Jesus has done. We want to go on and on and on and on and on and on and on about how great Jesus is and not how great our church or our ministries are. And I hope that's the vibe around here, Grace. I hope people say, ah, they're kind of a boring church. They sing and preach and pray and great. That's the kind of church I want to be that focuses on the preaching of the word and singing praises and giving and fellowship. I hope that's the vibe that we have around here, that it's about Jesus and not about how cool we are, how hip we are, how great our ministries are. Because honestly, telling people how many people we baptize or how many services we have or how great our church is, that won't change anybody. What changes and transforms people is Jesus talking about Jesus, telling people what Jesus has already done, telling people that Jesus fully obeyed the law for us because we can't do it, telling people that Jesus took the curse of the law upon himself on the cross even though we deserved it and he did it for sinners like you and me. Telling people that, that's what the Christian life is about. It's not about us. It's not about how great we are, how hip we are, how cool we are. Christian life is not about what we do, should do, have done, or haven't done. It's about Jesus. And since Jesus is the focus, let's focus once again on what he has already done. Let's stand and sing of his work on the cross for us. Let's stand in awe of the cross and sing of his redeeming love and how great is his faithfulness to his people. There's only one promise keeper, Grace, and his name is Jesus. And that's good news for promise breakers like you and me. We worship the one promise keeper who always keeps covenant. And we worship him in the context of our sins, our failures, and our broken promises. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace. It only comes to sinners. It only comes to the broken.
Forgive us for making this about us and not you. Forgive us for despairing when we don't read our Bible one day, despairing because we forgot to pray for the person that we told them we'd pray for them. Forgive us for being prideful of how faithful we are in our quiet times. Forgive us for making it about us. It's all about your son Jesus and what he has done for us, God. Would you turn our gaze once again to him so that we would do what our fighter verse says this week. As David said, the one thing I ask and seek is to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. He wasn't seeking to do things for you, Lord. He just wanted to see you. And I pray that you would open our eyes once again this morning to see Jesus and transform us. And may we leave here and go tell other people about him. For your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.